My instinct is not to trust what the government is telling us based on historical data. We know, and I document this in the book, Project Blue Book, where they were looking into UFO encounters and perhaps not all of what they found has been disclosed. And there are all kinds of memos out there that talk about the government's interest in these phenomena, and they have not been transparent with the public. So I'm skeptical that all of a sudden they're going to be magnanimous and tell us the full truth. But I also do wonder if we're at the time where there's just so much information where they have to like slowly let out truths to somehow like conceal their past dishonesty in a way to maybe smooth it over that they weren't telling the full truth while still giving people hints of truth. And I feel like that's happening to some extent, but I also have the suspicion that maybe they're trying to steer in a certain direction. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our collection of podcast series that focuses on markets and investing from a number of different and fascinating perspectives. The father of quantum physics, Max Planck, famously said, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And for anyone that has made a long-term living from markets, that quote may resonate. You see, the investment and trading world is filled with big personalities that are often battling out dogmatic perspectives. It is also filled with an abundance of brilliant and curious minds that are open to expanding their horizons. In our Galactic Macro series, we seek to open the boundaries of what is possible. We do this by drawing from experts working at the bleeding edge of technology, science, environment, global conflict, exopolitics, exploration of outer space and inner space, and consciousness. A core theme that spans many of the conversations involves the growing government revelations regarding non-human intelligence from advanced civilizations. This core theme is fundamentally important because it weaves every other topic into its fold. You'll likely have more questions than answers after tuning into this series, but it's guaranteed that you will have changed the way you look at things, and thus the things you look at will also have changed. And with that, please enjoy today's episode, hosted by David Dole. Niels, thank you for the uh, the introduction. Mark, it's a pleasure to have you with us here today. How are you doing? David, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a fun interview. I was looking forward to this. I spent a lot of time going through your book uh, this weekend, so I have a ton of questions about that. But before we go there, why don't you share with our audience, give us a little background. Who is Mark Gober? <laughs> Tell us about yourself. Okay. Well, my background on the surface has nothing to do with probably what we're going to talk about today. I had a very mainstream upbringing, went to Princeton University for undergrad, 
Uh, when I graduated in 2008, I went into investment banking. So I joined a large global investment bank, uh, UBS in New York during the crisis. This was summer of 2008. So I was there during a tumultuous time in New York and knew that it wasn't what I wanted to do long term, even though at the time I didn't really have a sense of meaning or purpose. I was just kind of on a treadmill trying to achieve the next thing that was in front of me, very much a perfectionistic kind of mentality. And I ended up joining a firm that was a spin out of the Boston Consulting Group, one of the world's largest strategy consultancies uh, based in Boston and Silicon Valley. And I started off in the Boston office, then spent most of my time in Silicon Valley advising companies on intellectual property strategy. So it was kind of a hybrid of business strategy, technology, and law, which I found to be more intellectually stimulating than what I was doing in New York, but it was still pretty similar. We did some mergers and acquisitions advisory, some just traditional strategy work. And while I was working in Silicon Valley, this was in 2016, I started listening to podcasts. Podcasts got were, were on the rise at that time, and I came across some alternative health shows and heard one episode on a show called Extreme Health Radio, just kind of randomly heard a woman talk about basically spiritual dimensions of reality that she was personally experiencing and was working with clients on. And it led me to then listen to other podcasts like it. And basically, I heard enough people describe a view of reality that contradicted my own that I started to ask questions, like maybe the way I looked at life before was not correct. Maybe I needed to rethink my worldview. Long story short, I, I've been on this path since 2016 of flipping my worldview upside down. And now I've written five books on various topics about worldview um, and also produced a podcast series in 2019 called Where Is My Mind? And generally, David, what I'm interested in now, whereas when I was on my more mainstream track, I wasn't as interested in this stuff is I want to understand who we are, what is this place that we live in, why are we here, what should we be doing, and more specifically, who am I, why am I here, what should I be doing? And that's what—that's the impetus that's driving me to write books like this. And I've also joined two nonprofit boards, which are more in this vein of trying to understand existence. One's called the Institute of Noetic Sciences. It was founded by an Apollo 14 astronaut who had a mystical experience coming back from his moon mission where he experienced the unity of everything in a way that's difficult to describe with words, but he was clearly so inspired that he ended up forming the Institute of Noetic Sciences, formed in 1973. And then the other board I'm on is the the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment, which is uh, a retreat center and an educational platform that is currently under construction outside of Asheville, North Carolina. That's that's wonderful. Yeah, that's if I'm not mistaken, that's Edgar Mitchell's organization. Ions was was started by Edgar Mitchell. Yes, right? it was. Apollo 14 astronaut. Edgar Mitchell is his name, and I did not get to meet him in person. So I joined the board in 2019. He passed away a few years before that. This is going to intrigue the audience, and there's there's a reason I want to go down this route because I think that there's a general sense that people fall into one of two camps: either they're into you know natural health and spirit and and consciousness or they're you know that stuff just seems really outlandish and they're into you know wall street and and tech and normal things and and you've kind of you've blended both those backgrounds beautifully and, and it's well expressed in your in your books one of the things that and we'll get into your we'll get into your books here in a moment but one of the things that i think you have a a gift for doing is combining the background with the, the science and and pulling that together in a way that is comfortable 
for people that may not be comfortable with these types of, of subjects. And, and what I think would be helpful is how did that, how did that happen for you? Was that because of your own background, you know, having been on Wall Street in Silicon Valley? What was the moment when the algorithms from YouTube or whatever kind of hit you and you had, wait a minute, hold on, there's more here. And then how did you go about kind of constructing this, this new reality or understanding for yourself? When I started researching in 2016, I heard, like I said, I heard some podcast episodes. So I heard anecdotal evidence of people having direct experiences of things. And these were people who had independent backgrounds. They weren't connected to each other and they had a similar view of reality. So that was an interesting data point to me. I couldn't reason that they were colluding with each other. It, it was enough to get me interested. That's my point. And then I started to read books and scientific papers and realized, wow, there's a whole body of science here, even peer-reviewed science that I had never heard of, whether it was Edgar Mitchell's Institute, the Institute of Noetic Sciences studying this. Princeton University had a lab for nearly 30 years run by the former dean of engineering. I didn't know about this when I was an undergrad. The University of Virginia has a division of perceptual studies at the medical school where they study things like the science of consciousness and life after death and things like that. So I just didn't know about that. And when I learned about this evidence, I felt very isolated because I didn't know who to talk to. Most people in my network were not familiar with this sort of thing. And I think part of maybe a survival instinct was wanting to be able to translate this stuff so that I didn't feel as isolated. And initially I started to tell friends about it. And once I had my story straight of like this study here, it just had my arguments in line. And then it got to the point where after about a year of starting to talk to friends about this, many of them were receptive and they just didn't have time to analyze it because they wanted to go into other things. But for the moments that we were talking, they, their minds were blown just like my mind had been blown. So a year into this, in 2017, I had this thought, this was in the summer, so it was about a year after I first started researching, that I should put this into a book and I should do it in a way that would appeal to a mainstream person, someone who had my kind of a background. And I was still working at my firm. I've since left the firm. I left at the end of 2019, early 2020. But this is 2016, before I became a partner, um, 2017, sorry, when I decided to write the book, that with my more traditional business background, I might be able to appeal to people who would normally not want to look at this. And my first book, An End to Upside Down Thinking, is a science book. I, I aggregate the science that I just referenced, David, and put into into one place. And my, my argument was, if any one of these phenomena is real, what you might call, quote unquote, paranormal, which to me, I don't like that term because that presumes that we know what normal is. And what I'm arguing is our paradigm of reality needs to shift. But if even one example is true, one of the anomalies, then we need to come up with a new framework for reality. And there's just so much. There's hundreds of citations in that book. Not my science, but the science of many brave people. So I thought that would be a way to bridge the logical mind with things that don't sound quite as logical, but actually are sort of logical once you dive into it. And that's been my approach with all my books, even though I've got into politics and economics and other phenomena, not just consciousness. I try to apply a logic-based approach to appeal to people who think like me, because I know that mind very well. Yeah, I love that. That's that's a great explanation. And I think that that will help people. One of the things that strikes me as peculiar today is that, especially with the dialogue around artificial intelligence, right? Everybody is is looking at, you know, investments in artificial intelligence. Companies are raising tons of money, both publicly and privately. Yet, it seems to still be only on the corners of the conversation where people are having adequate conversations about the significance of artificial intelligence and consciousness, which seems like a just, that almost seems like the starting point, not the ending point or, or on the edges. And I find it equally curious that 
in the conversation about quantum computing as well, same thing. However, if you talk to a quantum physicist, you, you know, the nature of reality and consciousness immediately comes up as a conversation, you know, very, very quick. So I, I think that this bridge, which you, you help others cross is more important than, than ever. And I want to take the audience, we'll go into a deep dive with consciousness and some of the phenomenon stuff here also in a, in a moment. I wanted to take a pause. One thing that I also think will, will be of interest to the audience is you, your own journey also with libertarianism. So as a, as a proponent of free markets, why don't you tell us a little bit about that, that journey and, uh, and your views on, uh, on free markets? I'm sure that will resonate with a lot of listeners. Again, I didn't start off on that path. Even what I was researching in 2016, 2017, at that point, I was looking at the nature of consciousness, the nature of reality broadly. And things shifted for me in 2020 when I had just left my firm. Um, I had just finished writing my second book. So I had a lot of time to watch the world unfold during the lockdowns and everything. And up to that point, I was not a political person. It was not something I cared about at all. Um, I, I didn't even know enough to really have political opinions. It was something I stayed out of. The only time I maybe cared was in my intellectual property days, days when there was legislation or certain branding in the media that related to my professional work. Otherwise, I didn't care much. And then I saw 2020 unfold, both the U.S. presidential election and things with COVID. And I saw a lot of corruption very quickly. I saw that we weren't being told the truth. These were things that I also witnessed when I was researching consciousness because there's a lot of suppression of valid science, but the media might brand it a certain way. Wikipedia will brand it a certain way. And I saw the same thing happening with anything that questioned the conventional narrative around COVID or anything that questioned whatever the mainstream political perspective was. So I was trying to figure out where I stood on this stuff because here I had come out with two books at that point on the nature of reality, consciousness. But within that community, there was a split. Not everyone agreed on what was happening in the world or what their opinions were. So I wanted to have a view on it, and I realized I didn't. And I knew early on that I was not resonating with generally what I would call the, the leftist position that was dominating mainstream. So I was looking more at people on the right because they were advocating for freedom and that we should be able to make our own decisions and things like that. But then I realized I didn't agree with necessarily everything on the right either. And I came across libertarian thinkers like Ron Paul. I was watching his Liberty Report and I was like, this guy really seems to get what's going on with COVID and some of the tyrannical movement that we're, that we're going into. I really liked what he was talking about. And I, I picked up some of his books and heard him talk about the Austrian School of Economics, which I had never come across. And actually at Princeton, when I started off there, I was in the economics department. I ended up switching out to psychology and wrote my thesis on behavioral economics but I was an econ major and I also qualified for the finance certificate. So I was down the mainstream economics route initially before I switched out of it. And it, for whatever reason at the time, it didn't resonate or I just, I knew I would go into business. So I didn't want to spend too much time in college on it. But I went back to thinking about my economics courses and how they were talking about, all about how the government's going to control the economy effectively. And we're going to alter interest rates and tax and all this stuff. And I realized, wait a second, the Austrian School of Economics is taking a 180 flip on that, which is let the market decide these things. No human being or groups of human beings are smart enough, even if they wanted to be, to know how to control an economy of people who have diverse preferences and have subjective preferences. They can't always be measured through logic. So that all that really resonated with me. So I went down a deep rabbit hole, got really into, initially I read the book, uh, the Most Dangerous Superstition by Larkin Rose. 
which talks about the danger of authority or the illusion of authority, which was a, a flip for me in terms of thinking about government. We're, we're trained to believe government is this benevolent entity, whereas others look at it as an inherently oppressive entity. So that was a flip. And then I looked at the work of Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises and Hans Hermann Hoppe, people like that, Tom Woods, Austrian economists, but also applying it to a political lens too. So very quickly, I realized that I had a new paradigm for the way I looked at politics. And this was the kicker for me, David, is that I could tie it to my work on consciousness, looking at what you might call natural law as it relates to the nature of reality actually aligns with the non-aggression principle. And this is the core of my book, An End to Upside Down Liberty. If you look at the nature of reality and the nature of libertarianism, meaning the non-aggression principle without any exceptions, there's an alignment there. So I said, wow, the way we, we run society is not in alignment with basic spiritual principles and natural law. I need to write about this. That's wild to connect those those dots. And, and I think that that is, it's so useful to bring those into alignment and help people understand that they are naturally in alignment. And full disclosure for those listening, you know, Austrian economics changed my, my flight path in my career. I got into Austrian economics a little over two decades ago. Um, I'm a career global macro background guy myself. And similar, I went down that rabbit hole. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't looking for, you know, an understanding of different political models or anything like that and got turned on to it by a friend and was blown away by the by the body of, of knowledge that accompanies it. I think a lot of people, you see a lot of arguments in, in financial media, you know, criticisms of Austrian economics or other models, but most people don't really, have not been afforded the opportunity to actually get into the body of work. And when you do, it's, it's, it's substantive. So just to kind of repeat back here, so we've got a, a young man, top honors from school. You've gone to, to Wall Street. You've been in Silicon Valley. You're a free markets guy. You've discovered free markets in, in Austrian economics. And you've now made as a cornerstone of your life this, this incredible research and deep dive into to consciousness. Help us understand why is this theme and, and if I'm not mistaken, almost above anything else, so vitally important for, for people to understand. I think a lot of people don't even bother to think about it. Consciousness just seems to be like, I, I wake up and I grab my coffee in the morning, I'm now conscious, right? <laughs> Versus asleep. Why don't you take us down that, down that road? Sure. Well, consciousness, let's define it. And it's a difficult term to define because it's not a physical thing. I can touch my chair, I can touch my body, but I can't touch my consciousness. So we're talking about an abstraction. But I, I think about consciousness as the part of us that experiences. Our subjective inner awareness is another way to think about it. So if I say that I am speaking to you, David, the I in that sentence is what I mean by consciousness. And that's pretty fundamental because without consciousness, we wouldn't even be able to ask questions about free market capitalism or the nature of reality or what should I do today. Consciousness is the fundamental aspect of our lives that allows us to experience and ask questions. So it needs to be understood. And like you say, it's often overlooked because we just go about our lives and we don't think about that which experiences the part of us that is experiencing all of this. And I'm harping on this point because when I started researching in 2016 and into 2017, I was shocked to learn that science did not understand consciousness. And I, like I said, I studied psychology. I switched out of econ into psychology. So I studied a little bit of neuroscience and this was not something that came up very much. 
the notion, it's called the hard problem of consciousness, which is that our body's physical, we live in a physical world, and our consciousness is not physical. How could something non-physical pop out of the physical world? Or more narrowly, how could something non-physical like consciousness come out of something physical like a brain? That's the hard problem of consciousness. Now, your listeners might be asking, well, don't we know from neuroscience that there's a strong correlation between what happens in the brain and our conscious experience? And shouldn't that be sufficient to say, well, the brain is generating consciousness? And we do know from neuroscience that, let's say you damage the part of the brain responsible for vision, the person will have a corresponding change in their vision. We can do this with all kinds of neural correlates of consciousness. Change the brain, change the consciousness. And people say, okay, we're good. The brain creates consciousness. And we know, however, from statistics, correlation does not necessarily imply causation. And to use uh, an analogy from Dr. Bernardo Castrop, who's done a lot of work in this area, he says, imagine you have a fire, firefighters show up at the scene. You have a larger fire, there are more firefighters. Very strong correlation between the size of the fire and the number of firefighters that show up. And then he asks rhetorically, should we then conclude that the firefighters caused the fire? No. <laughs> There's another way to explain the relationship between firefighters and the fire and the argument that I make, which is really kind of repackaging the arguments many others have made, is there's another way to explain the relationship between the brain and consciousness. That maybe the brain is not producing our capacity for experience, but it's acting like a filtering mechanism for a broader reality that's way beyond our bodies. Or another way to look at it, which I don't think is as, is as precise, is to say the brain's like an antenna receiver transmitter that is actually picking up something that's beyond the body. So hopefully your audience now can see why this is such a big deal. Is consciousness something that comes from the brain? Because if it is, then when your body shuts off, i.e. when you die, that's the end of your consciousness. Similarly, if consciousness is stuck in the brain, then there couldn't be any psychic phenomena. There could be no consciousness outside your body in space and time. That wouldn't be possible. How could that happen? But if consciousness is beyond the body, all of a sudden things like psychic phenomena, survival of bodily death, reincarnation even... These are not paranormal. They're at least possible. And one more analogy before I pause, because this really helped me contextualize things. Going back to Dr. Bernardo Castro, the philosopher, he says that we could envision reality as like a stream of water, an infinite stream where water is analogous to consciousness. Each of us is a whirlpool within that broader stream, meaning we have a sense of being an individual, but we're connected as part of an interconnected consciousness that's beyond our individuality. So there's this paradox of being an individual and not being an individual simultaneously. Now, if you believe this to be true, if we just take it as a hypothesis, if some of the water from my whirlpool gets into your whirlpool, some of my consciousness getting into your consciousness, that's a psychic ability. So this model would predict that, yeah, psychic phenomena and let's say other dimensions of reality, they just exist beyond our whirlpool, but we normally perceive. Likewise, if a whirlpool stops being a whirlpool, i.e. the water delocalizes, that's like when the body dies, consciousness doesn't die. It just transitions into a new form and it could be recycled into a new whirlpool later where some of the information from the initial whirlpool goes into another one. That would be like a reincarnation-esque type phenomenon. So there's zero doubt that lots of people's minds just got blown <laughs> right there going, wow. And I think that what I'd, what I'd like to touch on with this, because you've done a lot of work on this, 
And m- most people are just oblivious to the the research that has been conducted on near-death experiences as well as reincarnation. And we're talking, you know, loads and loads and loads of work on that. Um, you know, people just kind of presume, oh, maybe maybe there's something there, maybe there's not. Why don't you share, because this this falls right into this this conversation on consciousness, that, you know, it, it, it's not within us. It's something non-localized, right? Share with us some examples and in, in some of the body of evidence that surrounds near-death experiences. Near-death experiences are instances in which a person is in some kind of extreme physiological trauma. So cardiac arrest is a good example, where we know that blood stops flowing to the brain after a certain amount of time. So in many cases, people are clinically dead, but it's not always that extreme. A near-death experience is that type of phenomenon though. So the person is close to death and when they're resuscitated, they come back talking about an elaborate experience where they say it was realer than real life. Sometimes they even encounter what they would call other intelligent beings, deceased relatives, what they would call spiritual entities, beings of light. Sometimes they encounter a tunnel, but they also talk about being o- above their body or outside their body, known as an out-of-body experience, meaning their, their body's in one place, but their consciousness is somewhere else. And it is viewing the world through that lens. So it's seeing things from above their body or outside the room where their body's located. They talk about feelings of unconditional love and bliss, although there are some hellish near-death experiences that are much more fear-inducing. But the majority of the ones that are reported, people come back and say, I experienced interconnectedness and this one stream of consciousness that I talked about before. They felt that. And then they come back in their body and they tell people about it. And people say, we are crazy because we know what your physiology was doing. You must have hallucinated that. That's the conventional argument is that near-death experiences, yes, they occur, but they are hallucinations caused by a dying brain. And because we have resuscitation technology that's improved over the last several decades, there are many more of these cases of people coming back. And some people also will say, David, well, yeah, there's now a cultural conditioning where you've heard so many stories that you're conditioned when you enter this near-death state to come back and say you saw these things. One of the problems, though, is that children also have very similar near-death experiences, so they don't have the same kind of cultural conditioning. This is the way it goes with near-death experiences. There's always a, the, the mainstream argument, then there's a counter-argument that the media doesn't often talk about as much. So another one I'll give you is the out-of-body experience. People sometimes report things accurately from that vantage point outside their body. So upon being resuscitated, they tell the doctor, oh, I saw the way you were operating on me. Or they say, I saw this thing or heard this thing outside the operating room. And people say, well, that was accurate. How'd you know that? You couldn't have. We know what your physiology was doing at that time because you told me when it happened. We can timestamp it. And you should not have been able to produce any cognitions. And even if there was some tiny amount of brain functioning that we can't measure, it should not have been enough for you to be able to see that or hear it from outside your body accurately. So these are called veridical out-of-body experiences. Veridical is the key term, meaning what they perceived was verified as accurate, i.e. not a hallucination by definition. That's the key point. And, and you know, one of the things that I picked up reading your book, so I was re-reviewing it over the, the weekend, and one of the things that jumped out at me that I had not heard of prior was shared death experiences between you might have an adult and, and a child and just in, in basically identical experiences of, of what happened. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought, the, brought this up because it doesn't get talked about in the near-death literature quite as much as it should. The shared death experience is when a healthy person, i.e. the person does not have a dying brain, 
co-lives in the dying process with another person who's dying. Sometimes it's a bystander at the bedside. Sometimes it's a family member who's at a distance. But they go through this very similar stages of the near-death experience, and they have a totally healthy brain. So that, again, would challenge the notion that, oh, well, just somehow the chemicals in a dying brain cause these experiences. The shared death experience, which has been talked about now, William Peters has been studying this and wrote a book about it, Raymond Moody as well, but there's a peer-reviewed paper that looks at this in the palliative care area, because this comes up with, when people are dying, where there seems to be something universal, where maybe outside of the individual whirlpool, to go back to that analogy, the other dimensions open up. If we view the brain as like a blindfold, a filter of consciousness, the blindfold is somehow lifted in the dying process and people experience things outside of their individual experience, outside their whirlpool. And that can be transferred, it seems, or co-experienced with another person who might be in resonance with the dying person or something. That's the only way I can reason it. But it's a key phenomenon because it, it, it challenges the notion that a near-death experience is just a hallucination caused by the brain. It, and along with that, there was an, another term that I picked up from from your work that also fascinated me um, and is also near and dear to me. So you get a kick out of this is my my father who set me on this route of being fascinated with, you know, what's been defined the paranormal. And he was very much like you interested in like, hey, let's take this serious. Let's not put weird names on it and and try and, you know, stigmatize it. Coincidentally, he's he's reading uh, he's reading a book by Rupert Sheldrake right now. And he's suffering from Alzheimer's. So he's been losing his, his memory. And you talk about this term, terminal lucidity, which is just so interesting. Tell us, tell, tell the listeners, what is terminal lucidity? What does that mean? And, 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 and what have they discovered about that? Well, this is a phenomenon that many hospice workers observe, where a person is near the time of death. It might be a few days before dying. And let's say the person has had Alzheimer's or something where their brain has been in an abnormal state, their brain has been damaged in a certain way, and maybe the person hasn't had a normal memory in a long time. Before they die, shortly before dying, they snap back into clarity and they have a normal conversation. And then they sh die shortly thereafter. And the reason I often bring this up in my books is that it's one of the phenomena which challenges the view that the brain creates consciousness because there are a host of phenomena in which the brain is less functional or abnormal in some way and yet the person has a relatively enriched experience of consciousness. So terminal lucidity, damaged brain, and then a normal consciousness. That's a little bit strange. Psychedelics. There is emerging research, although much more needs to be done, and it's hard because of the legal issues to study this. But some studies have been done where during the psychedelic trip, in other words, during an enriched state of consciousness, there are certain reductions in brain functioning. Less brain, more consciousness. Near-death experience is a clear example. The brain is completely off or barely functional, and the person describes something that is realer than real. Savant syndrome. This is another one that mainstream scientists will acknowledge. The movie Rain Man is a good example. It was based off of a character, a, a person named Kim Peek, who was a savant. Dustin Hoffman played this person, but there are many others. They have extraordinary mathematical abilities, extraordinary memories, or even musical abilities, and yet they have a damaged brain in certain ways. Less brain, more consciousness. There's actually an article written by Dr. Bernardo Castrup in Scientific American, I believe it was 2017, called Transcending the Brain, something like that, where he goes through example after example. Less brain, more consciousness. Less brain, enriched consciousness. These phenomena point to the idea that the brain is getting in the way of reality, not actually creating it. It's like a blindfold. And when you get the blindfold out of the way, 
there's a lot more to be experienced outside the individual whirlpool. This is the reversal in thinking. This is why my books are all, they all start with upside down something. One of the things I picked up, I was listening to uh, your podcast series, which is great. And I recommend everybody tune into that because you do just such a great job of distilling these things. Same in your books. When it comes to, you so we're covering consciousness, we're covering, you know, near-death experiences. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, something else that seems to be taboo to a lot of folks is even though practically everybody has experienced it in some way or another, is extrasensory perception, right? So whether that's telepathy, precognition, um, in more extreme cases, you know, telekinesis or whatever else, give us your your views and how you came to to understand that. You mentioned uh, Pearl uh, Laboratories, which is fascinating. Maybe touch on that. I don't think peop- anybody even knows. Most pe- people won't know what that is. Tell us about the role of of psychic abilities. When I first started on this journey, these phenomena were, were essential in my own transition because I heard the personal anecdotes of people saying, well, I had the psychic thing happen or I had a precognitive dream where I dreamed an event before it happened, things like that. But again, they were still anecdotes. And when I started to read books, I, I learned about scientific studies that showed, statistically speaking, that normal human beings can know things that they shouldn't know through ordinary means beyond what chance would predict. Often it is a small effect statistically but it's highly significant. So I'll give an example for the classic telepathy study. And these sorts of studies, not just for telepathy, but also for precognition, which is knowing or sensing the future before it happens, for psychokinesis, which is the ability for the mind to impact matter, which makes sense. If everything is mind to some degree, shift your mind, reality might shift in some small way or some large way. Remote viewing, which is the ability for the mind to perceive things that are far away, both in space and time. These are all six sigma level of statistical results, meaning that the odds that they occur due to chance in various studies is more than a billion to one against chance. Dr. Dean Radin, who's the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, where I'm on the board, so I've gotten to know a lot of these scientists very well. He wrote a book called Real Magic, and there's a, a chapter in that book called Scientific Evidence, and he goes through the six sigma results if your audience is interested, and the actual papers. I cite them as well in my books, but I'll give you one example from telepathy. It's known as the Gonsfeld experiment. And you separate two people who are just normal people. Sometimes they're college sophomores. And one person is put into a relaxed state and another person is shown an image by the experimenters. And the person who's in the other room, who's in a relaxed state, doesn't know what the image is that's being shown. So we'll call the person who's in a relaxed state, Bob, and the person who's in the other room, Jane. So Jane's looking at this image and the experimenters say, Jane, I want you to try to mentally send this to Bob in the other room. And this isn't a person who claims to have psychic abilities. So she's looking at the image, trying to use her mind to send it to Bob. And then after a while, Bob is shown four images by the experimenters. And they say, Jane was trying to send you one of these four. I want you to guess which one. Now, if there were no information transfer from Jane to Bob, then the person in Bob's room should guess correctly 25% of the time. And when you do lots and lots of trials, it should certainly approach 25%, one out of four because it should be random. There shouldn't be any way for Bob to get the information from Jane because she didn't talk to him. He had no way of knowing what she was looking at. What do the experimenters find is that it's closer to 32 or 33% of the time that the person in Bob's room guesses correctly. That might sound small, but statistically, it means that something is getting through beyond what chance would predict. In other words, it's an anomaly that has to be accounted for. And this is the kind of effect that is found over and over again with regard to you might call them psi, PSI phenomena, parapsychology, ESP, which is um, extrasensory perception, 
It's all the same sort of thing. And, and I'll give one more example that was very influential to me before I pause. The U.S. government ran a psychic spying program from the 1970s to the 1990s. I interviewed Russell Targ in my podcast series, Where Is My Mind, who was one of the leaders of the program in the 70s. There are declassified documents out there that you can download. I include them in my books too. They say remote viewing, which is the ability to perceive something far away with the mind, psychic spying, they say remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Implications are revolutionary. And they show the scientific panel that evaluated this. And so this was a real thing that was done. And in fact, this is the last thing I'll say before I pause. Dr. Jessica Utz, who was in 2016, the president of the American Statistical Association. This is a statistics professor from UC Davis. In 1995, she was tasked with looking at the evidence for psychic phenomena, not just the U.S. government psychic spying program, but the other studies that look at statistical results too. She said in her findings, this is a direct quote, using the standards applied to any other area of science, it is concluded that psychic functioning has been well established. Fantastic. And for those listening that, you know, want to check this out, there's a great uh, documentary that's available on YouTube, Third Eye Spy, which is with Russell Targ and, and of course, Hal Putoff that ran that program. I, I would imagine, while I haven't heard anything recently on it, I, I would be surprised if that program is still not running. It has to be running in some form or fashion because it was so useful. And it wasn't just us doing it. We know that the the Russians were using, you know, similar programs. Remote viewing is incredibly fascinating. It's very easy to learn. How Putoff even said, so, you know, as relevance to trading, they used it. They did a study and they traded for a moment successfully. And another guy, I don't recall his name, I think it was a Polish uh, gentleman, did it with uh, sports betting and with a very, very conservative, you know, method. And he was correct 53% of the time, even using the, the kind of the weaker remote viewing techniques. And I'm, I'm persuaded, you know, I've met a lot of really, you know, fantastic traders, you know, over my career. And there's zero doubt in my mind, you know, you ask these guys, you know, behind closed doors, you know, what it is that is their edge. And a lot of times they can't quite describe it. But it's it's really that that precognition. I believe good traders have that, you know, to varying degrees. Really good traders, I think they've got it a lot of it. And it would be fascinating. I would love to see a study of taking some of the some of the best traders and uh, and running them through these these laboratories. Well, so let's turn to your book here, the one specifically that I had the opportunity to read, and I really enjoyed it, by the way. So this was your book, An End to Upside Down Contact, UFOs, Aliens, and Spirits, and Why Their Ongoing Interaction with Human Civilization Matters. Hell of a title. So this is a great opportunity. What got you on the, the, the UFO uh, topic? Why, why did this hit your, hit your radar? Well, it hit me early on in 2016, because I was studying the research at the University of Virginia on children who have past life memories. These are children between the ages of two and six years old, usually. And sometimes they, these little kids are talking about a life that is not their own. They know very specific details. And the researchers, in particular, um, Dr. Ian Stevenson, who was a leading psychiatrist, started investigating and found that he could find historical records sometimes that validated what the kids were saying. He also found that the children sometimes had birthmarks and physical defects 
that aligned with how they alleged to have died in the previous life. And in the best cases, he could find medical records. Now, Jim Tucker at UVA studies this as well. So I was looking at the past life phenomenon, generally speaking, and saw there was evidence for it. And also heard some cases of people using hypnosis to access things beyond their whirlpool, whether it was a memory from a past life that they previously had amnesia to, for example. And they were talking about things off planet all the time. They were like, yeah, I was on this other planet. I was not a human being. Dr. Linda Bachman, who does, it's called past life regression hypnosis, where she uses hypnosis to help people try to unlock these memories. She was a traditional psychologist, and then she had a paranormal experience, quote unquote paranormal, and she realized that maybe there's an afterlife, and she started to do past life regression hypnosis, just taking people to whatever came up, and usually it was some human past life. And we can't validate all these, of course. But then what started to happen is that person after person was describing a life not on earth. And she was like, I'm not interested in this alien stuff, but like people were coming up with these things independently. They didn't know each other, and they had very similar things that they talked about in terms of the challenges in this life as it related to what she called their interplanetary soul. And so I had been primed. That was a long way of answering your question, David. I had been primed early on to be open to this stuff because people were experiencing entities, not just in the past life setting, but also in the near-death experience. They co- people come back and say, yeah, I hovered over my body. I saw things accurately, but they also encountered a being of light. And they would say, well, this is a being that I've known throughout time. And I'm, I'm back at home with this being where I encountered my deceased relatives or I encountered, they might say it was the Buddha or Jesus or some other being that had significance to them, not always corresponding with their religion. Interestingly, usually it does, but not always. They were encountering intelligences. So this had been in the back of my mind for a while of understanding, well, if we're not alone in terms, we're not at the top of the food chain in terms of intelligence, we got to understand that because that might impact the way we look at our, our planet. But more specifically, how did I come? Because I'd written three books before writing An End to Upside Down Contact. The one before it was An End to Upside Down Liberty, which is on libertarian thinking, Austrian economics. And I combined it with the metaphysical. And I talked about the nature of reality, the nature of consciousness. And I, I threw in a little bit in one of the chapters where I said, look, there is evidence of John Mack's work. He was the head of psychiatry at Harvard, Pulitzer Prize winner, as mainstream as you can be. And he, at the end of his career, started studying people who claimed that they encountered non-human intelligences, that they were abducted. And he wrote a book called Abduction in 1994, and then another one called Passport to the Cosmos five years later, where he approaches things like a scientist. It's a very, these are meticulously written books. He concluded that the people were not psychotic and they were interacting with beings. Another researcher, Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark from Montana State University, has spent time with indigenous cultures, Native Americans, people all over the world, and they're saying that the sky people came and taught them things, the star gods. These are consistent stories all over the world. Even though they might have differences in terms of what their interactions were like, they were encountering beings. So I kind of pose this question in in End to Upside Down Liberty and leave it alone, which is that if we're not alone, how might these beings that we can't always see with our eyes, maybe they're multidimensional or maybe they're just hidden, how are they influencing our political structures and world events? Could they be interacting? And I just say, well, generally political theory doesn't examine that. So I had left that open. And I, I guess something hit me after I wrote that book. It was published in the end of 2021 that I needed to explore this stuff more deeply. And more specifically, I needed to, I felt like in my own study, I wanted to understand the duality of dark and light. That even though we might be connected at some level and people whether it's in the near-death state or other spiritually transformative states, they say conclusively 
we are one. The universe is made of unconditional love. That's the base level of reality. And while that might be true at some level, there are other levels of reality that are more nuanced where we have dark and light. And I wanted to understand those forces. So that's what I explore in an end to upside down contact. I look at the idea that number one, we're not alone, but what is the nature of that? Who, who are these beings and are they all benevolent? Are they not benevolent? What are they doing? Yeah, the, the scenarios where people are encountering beings is, is fascinating. And this is, this is why I wanted to kind of tie some of these threads together for the audience and the near-death experiences in the reincarnations. Uh, Dr. Andrew Gallimore with the DMTX uh, experiments right now, which is fascinating. So for those not familiar with Dr. Gallimore, he's, you know, DMT is a synthesized kind of spirit molecule that people find in, you know, it's, it's in ayahuasca, which gives these incredible you know, s spiritual, you know, encounters and they're doing extended, you know, time under DMT and the one common denominator over and over and over that is just absolutely documented is encounters with beings in conversations and communication. And so it, it's, it's clear that there's something going on. I think that what is, is also uh, helpful and I, I'd like to cover with you is that what I want to help the audience with is there's a lot of people that are coming into the conversation around, you know, UAP, the new name for UFOs. And the first kind of entry to it is, oh, there's maybe something, you know, intergalactic, you know, zipping through our, our skies. Okay. That's, you know, that's plausible. But that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? You, you, you start to realize, okay, well, well, if it is, and then it's like, well, do we know what it is? How does it do that? Where is it coming from? Is it intergalactic? Is it interdimensional? Is it time traveling? Is it all of the above? Which is kind of the theory that, that I ascribe to. And so what's happening is one of the things that I'm getting from a lot of people is they're just asking a lot of questions, understandably, as most do when they look into it. And you start to realize that this covers everything. I mean, it just touches on every aspect of our lives, the shaping of our lives, the shaping of, of, of history and, and humanity. And you, you touch on, on those things as well in your, in your book. Is your belief that this has been going on with humanity probably since the, the beginning? Is that a fair assessment from your, from your research? That's what I think now. I would say it's a hypothesis because I can't prove it. But there just seems to be so much evidence from everywhere around the world. If you read the ancient mythology and the ancient religious lore, my, the way I would have approached that before was that's mythology. It's fiction. But now I'm reading it and I'm like, wow, they're using different words to describe what people are experiencing today. And if you just change the language a little bit, then the, it's the same thing. And you can look at ancient texts, and I, I quote some of this in the book. Paul Wallace has done really fascinating work. He's a, an archdeacon in the Australian Anglican Church who has essentially gone off the rails relative to traditional Christianity. And now he's interpreting the Bible as these were beings. It wasn't God as in like one creator, omniscient being. These were advanced intelligences, and he talks about the term Elohim, which is the Hebrew word to describe, one of the words used to describe God. It's a plural term. So he goes into this, he, like many others, interprets the Bible through this lens that people were having experiences. Ezekiel had this amazing vision where he encountered creatures, and there was this fiery chariot. It's very elaborate what he describes. That could be like a, some kind of an encounter that he had, whether it was in this physical dimension or another dimension. If he's changed the lens... All of a sudden, it looks very much like we have been intervened with since the beginning of time. And even to take it a step further, which some of these ancient myths allude to, in the same way that human beings can now do genetic modification, it might be the case that the human being that we are currently, that we are the product of 
genetic modification from other species. And that's what many of the stories talk about. Yeah. And for me, that's, I don't find that a giant leap at all. It, it's just, it seems very, very logical. I mean, as advanced as we've become in, in genetic experimentation our, ourselves, it, to imagine a civilization that's a hundred years ahead of us, let alone a thousand or, or a million years. I was intrigued with a book that I read many years ago that was, the book's a little bit dry, but it's, the story is nonetheless fascinating. And it talks about the mythology of the, the Dogon tribe. Well, what they thought was a myth, right? And um, I don't recall the the author, but it was an anthropologist that was, you know, traveling through Africa and recording the the oral history of these tribes. And and with the Dogon tribe, I believe this was in late sixties, early seventies when he first passed through there. He records their 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 mythology, and it's it's fascinating. They start describing effectively that hey, we came from the stars. It was a binary star system, and it struck him as peculiar that you know they were describing quite literally the kind of the mass of these stars and all these really unusual details that a tribe that doesn't even have you know written literature it didn't make sense to him. So he he wrote a book on this and and published it. And then I believe it was, somebody can fact check this and tell me where I'm correct or wrong uh, later, but I believe it was when Hubble launched that we were able to see, you know, the, the binary star system as described by them. We didn't even have the ability to see it yet until Hubble came out and it matched everything that they said. It was like just completely spot on. Those things, they can't be ignored. I, I, I don't think you can ignore that. There was a, uh, a piece I wanted to ask you about this. So in your, in your book, I found this just absolutely fascinating because I'm, I'm very familiar with the, the Rendlesham Forest case in the UK, but I did not know about this writing down of the ones and, and zeros. I've never heard that. Why don't we take a moment, tell everybody a little bit about the Rendlesham case, why that's important and certainly connected to, you know, current news, news events. And then, then walk us through this, you know, this journal with the ones and zeros. Yeah. This is so wild. So in the book, It End Upside Down Contact, I, I talk about, I just want to give context for your audience. I talk about contact that is not related to UFOs. So like near-death experiences, DMT, psychedelics, that's one category. And another is contact related to UFOs, like actual crafts. And this is one of the examples that I give. And my approach is that, can I prove every detail of every single one? No, but there's so many cases throughout history and in the modern era. So I give a sampling of some of the most compelling cases where people have done a lot of research. And one is this Rendlesham Forest case, which was 1980, I believe, in the UK, where there was a craft and people who were had military affiliation were asked to go take a look at it. And one of the guys named Jim Penniston was out there looking at this thing and he touched it. And there were, I, I believe, like hieroglyphs. There was some weird stuff on the craft that made it seem mystical. But he touched the craft and then he, that night after when he went home, he started seeing like ones and zeros in his mind and felt like he had to write them down in his journal. So he just wrote down, it's, which turned out to be binary code, a series of ones and zeros. And it wasn't until years later, he was on the set of a documentary where he had his journal from, his day, from back in 1980 and someone saw that he had zeros and ones on his, in his journal. And they said, that's binary code. We need to decode this. So he found someone to help decode it. And he's got a book now on the Rendlesham Forest case that's like 700 pages long, where he documents in detail everything that happened. I mean, but he, he goes through what was decoded in this binary code. And it was number one, like coordinates, places on earth that happen to be where there are pyramids. 
So there's something weird going on with that. And then there was a message for humanity. I, I don't remember the exact words, but it was something about like the evolution of the species that I'm paraphrasing it. So this was, you know, Jim Penniston talked about this. I saw the interview, maybe it was 2022. It's on a podcast called Expanding Reality, hosted by Brandon Thomas, where Jim Penniston just walks through this and he has the book talking about it. But it's one of these cases where it's like something that's verified, where he was just writing down random zeros and ones decades ago, and then you could decode it later. And then there seemed to be meaning in the coding. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, fascinating. And and for those not familiar, definitely look into the Rendlesham Forest uh, case. It's very, very well known, well documented. It's it's up there with one of the top kind of you know documented UFO encounters. Yeah, that blew my mind. I, I had not heard that, and and I think that it's fascinating. So this is where you know bridging these things together. So we now have you know Senator Marco Rubio, part of the Gang of Eight, is on top of this issue in U.S. Congress. Uh, we've got actually a number of, you know, congressmen and congresswomen looking at UFOs, UAP. They're looking at the, you know, there's, of course, correlations with the uh, Havana syndrome, which is is very, very, very key. And I think that this is going to open up just a huge, you know, moment of woe for 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 humanity. And I wanted to get your your take on it because things are moving extraordinarily quick. The legislation is impressive to say the least. And which, you know, we're not really used to seeing out of Congress on on anything, right? <laughs> so politics, you know, are they're they're not known for cooperation and um and, and getting competent leg- legislation out the door. But when it comes to the topic of UAP and exotic materials and and all these things that are now making their way into the legislation, it's moving at at breakneck speeds. What is your take on what's currently happening and using your precognitive skills? Where 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 is this all going? My instinct is not to trust what the government is telling us based on historical data. We know, and I document this in the book, Project Blue Book, where they were looking into UFO encounters and perhaps not all of what they found has been disclosed. And there are all kinds of memos out there that talk about the government's interest in these phenomena, and they have not been transparent with the public. So I'm skeptical that all of a sudden they're going to be magnanimous and tell us the full truth. But I also do wonder if we're at the time where there's just so much information where they have to like slowly let out truths to somehow like conceal their past dishonesty in a way to maybe smooth it over that they weren't telling the full truth while still giving people hints of truth. And I feel like that's happening to some extent, but I also have the suspicion that maybe they're trying to steer in a certain direction. Then there's another part of me that says, it really, in many ways, doesn't matter what they say. Because like, let's say the the New York Times article that came out a few years ago, that's a bombshell that people were seeing UFOs that could do things that that we can't explain with our traditional technology. And it was like nothing happened. Most people just don't even care. And I found this with all my work because in my work, I'm challenging paradigms and I've been willing to dive into that. And I, I enjoy diving into that. But I know a lot of people like friends and, and people in my network who just don't want to do that. They, like I, I tell the story of a buddy of mine when I was first starting down this path years ago. Um, I told him some of the scientific evidence I was encountering and he goes, Mark, I bet you're right about this, but my life is good the way it is and I don't want to rock the boat. So I'm just going to like put blinders on. And I think that's a lot of the public looks at things this way. I mean, they're really busy with family, taking care of the kids, putting food on the table. They're distracted with other things. It's like, I can't deal with this alien stuff. 
whereas other people want to dive into it. So there's a part of me that wonders whether it's going to have any impact if they disclose things, if they, if they come out and say conclusively, we are not alone. There are crafts. They've sometimes been operated. Sometimes they're military. Sometimes they're operated by advanced intelligences. Is that going to make a blip on the radar relative to some of the other political news that people care more about? I'm not sure. That's fair and and and, and hard to disagree with. I, I've run into similar things with friends where they're just like, yeah, you know, okay. <laughs> they're like, yeah, I believe you, but, you know, I've, I've still got to, you know, I got to be at work at nine o'clock. So, you know, well, hopefully they don't invade. And um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's interesting. I, and I agree with you. It, it does feel like there is a, a concern to, to quickly accelerate shaping narrative, which is typical, you know, would be typical of the, the government. And it also simultaneously feels like maybe some of the toothpaste is out of the toothpaste canister. And they're not really sure how to get that back in. And so, okay, you know, we need to kind of move quickly. And, and hopefully within that, we see kind of the cracks of, of the narrative and are able to filter through some of that and see some more of the reality. Just as a final comment, because I think that a lot of people, you know, there's a lot of fascination with, you know, folks in technology like Elon Musk and SpaceX and, you know, Elon Musk, you know, quipped on Twitter that, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't know, he hadn't seen anything, you know, with aliens or UFOs and, and he would know. And a lot of people speculated like, oh, he must be read in at the, the highest level. I totally disagree with that. I don't think any government would ever read, <laughs> read in Elon Musk into any, anything of, of, of top secret uh, caliber. But one of the interesting figures in, the, in, in UFO history, as well as in study of consciousness, is Robert Bigelow. And, and, and Robert Bigelow, if you could, well, we've got a couple minutes you know, left here. Could you tell people a little bit about you know, Robert Bigelow, who, who, he, who he is, and, um, and what he's currently up to with, with consciousness? So he is a billionaire in the aerospace industry and has taken a great interest in the UFO phenomenon and also consciousness generally. So the questions that we're talking about today, who are we, why are we here, what's the nature of reality? So much so that he put out a prize for who could come up with the best evidence of the survival of consciousness after bodily death. And the prize winners and the, their essays are all available. It's called the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Research. That was maybe a year and a half ago. And I believe he has a new prize out for maybe up to a million dollars. So these are pretty significant about showing evidence of communicating with the deceased, meaning that a deceased person's consciousness still exists as a multidimensional whirlpool. And we in our dimension can somehow access those people. And there is scientific evidence for this. The Windbridge Research Center has done studies using five levels of blinding with psychic mediums, people claiming they can communicate with the deceased and they're getting statistical results. Again, not 100%, but it's statistically significant. Robert Bigelow is taking an interest in all this stuff. So I find that very interesting too. And I quote him a number of times in my book on contact because he, he finds this stuff to be real. Same thing with Edgar Mitchell, the, who started the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He says this stuff is real. There are interviews, you can watch them on YouTube where he says it's real, it's been going on for a long time, that sort of thing, which I find really interesting because the Institute of Noetic Sciences is interested in the nature of reality broadly and studying ESP type phenomena, but um, haven't done studies. I'm not even sure if he could do studies on UFO phenomena. It's harder to do that. And here he was, he wanted to found this consciousness center and he was talking about the reality of UFOs. 
He was also born in Roswell. So he has some inside insights into what happened there in the 1940s and believes that a lot has been concealed. It's, it's, it's absolutely just fascinating. And what I would submit to, to everybody listening is that I think the key takeaway here is that all of this is, is connected. And, you know, as we close out here, Mark, I'm going to borrow a, a, a quote that I found in your, in your book, if I may. So this was from Nobel uh, Prize winning quantum physicist Wolfgang Pauli. Pauli said, it is my personal opinion that in the science of the future, reality will neither be psychic nor physical, but somehow both and somehow neither. And I think that that's just perfectly said by a quantum physicist and, um, and a great way to conclude today's conversation. Mark, thank you so much for, for coming on the show today and uh, really appreciate it. This was just a, a, an absolutely mind-expanding conversation. And uh, I look forward to reading the rest of your books and, and staying in touch with you on, on all these subjects. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, David. I appreciate it. And thanks for your open-mindedness to cover these really important topics. Our, our pleasure. And with that, Niels, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you so much, Mark and David, for a mind-blowing conversation, to say the least, all the way from Austrian economics to consciousness. There is a lot to digest from this conversation, but for me, it comes down to a few themes. Quantum computing and AI are getting a lot of press these days, and even if the technology is different, they do have a common denominator, which is consciousness. And from what we're hearing from places like Microsoft, ChatGPT is now starting to show signs of consciousness. I also think it was very interesting to hear that one of the most decorated U.S. astronauts, who was the sixth man to walk on the moon, has also come back to the topic of consciousness given all of his experiences. And finally, perhaps the one that hit me the hardest was the topic of near-death experiences, because as some of you listening to Top Traders on Plot know, my own son suffered a cardiac arrest at the age of nine and was out for quite a long time before they were able to bring him back. So perhaps I need to speak with him about what he remembers from that day next time I see him. That's it for today. Make sure you go and follow Mark's and David's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many ways to look at things, and sometimes we need to change our worldview, and we are certainly looking forward to challenging your worldview as our series continue. From David and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.